Hey Artemis, it's Ashley Chance. We're taking a break over the holidays and we want to revisit the most popular series we've ever recorded, a deep dive into ungulate research with the scientists at the Monteith shop. You've written to us about this series. You love the scientists. We love the scientists. There's the animals, mule deer, bighorn, moose. And I think this series was such a hit because it showed us so much about the science of some of these icons of the big game world. The more we know about these species, the richer our sporting journey. Without further ado, I'll let Marsha take it from here. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee. It's hunting season and Artemis is out in the field, but we have pre-recorded a series of episodes with scientists from the Monteith Shop. It's a wildlife research group in Wyoming that's home to some of the most in-depth ungulate research in the West and to innovative thinkers on the front lines of wildlife science. The work they do is critical to ensuring conservation projects, policy, and plans are based on how wildlife are actually interacting with the landscape and grounded in scientific research. Plus, as hunters intensely curious about the behaviors of the animals we pursue and dedicated to their health and vitality, we find this research deeply fascinating, and we know you will too. Thank you for joining us for the Monteith Shop series, Chasing Ungulate Tales. Hey everybody, welcome to the Artemis Podcast special series, Chasing Ungulate Tales with Monteith Shop. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee, joined once again by co-host Jess Johnson. Hi, Jess. Hey, Marsha. I am looking forward to this one. Me too. There's a lot of uh, good research to dig into, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to get started. This is the third episode in our series, and our guest today is Taylor Lashar. Hi, Taylor. Hi, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, we are really stoked to geek out with you on, on your research and uh, look forward to picking your brain. Cool. Will you start? Why don't you start by telling us where you're calling from? Um, so I'm in Laramie right now. Uh, I spend, so I go to school. I'm a, a graduate student at the university um, in Kevin's shop. And uh, so I spend my falls and springs in Laramie. And then I spend my summers um, in Western Wyoming uh, chasing deer. Nice. Uh, and what is your background as a hunter angler? Um, so I grew up fishing a little bit. Um, and then my grandpa taught me to fly fish when I was probably 12 or 13. Um, but I haven't done actually a lot of fishing in the last few years since starting grad school. Um, but I did start hunting recently. So uh, when I was an undergrad, I had a friend who took me squirrel hunting. And so um, I, that was the first thing I ever hunted was squirrel. Um, and then I did some jackrabbit hunting while I was an undergrad as well. And then over the last few years, I started to transition to big game. Um, so last year was actually the first year I harvested anything. Um, and it was a, a pronghorn. And it was actually with two other people in Kevin's lab or his um in Kevin's shop, uh, Rian Jacob Peck and uh, Brittany Wagler. Um, and oh, so nice. we all went together. And then we actually went again this last weekend with a, a slightly larger group of people. And um, I harvested another antelope. Oh, congrats. Thanks. Yeah, I was yeah. very excited. So yeah, our first episode in the series was with Rebecca and she mentioned that you guys were going to go on your antelope trip. So that was this past weekend? Yeah, and she harvested a doe. Brittany Wagler went with her and the two of them. Uh, yeah, Brittany kind of walked her through everything. And yeah, she said it was a great hunt. She had a great shot and she's very excited. She told me she talked to you guys about it oh. and that she's very excited to eat the heart. So Oh, oh fantastic. Oh, oh, that's exciting. That makes me happy. Um, and uh, so were you with a different group or are you with that group as well? Um, so we, we all put in as a party tag, um, and then we went as a group, but we split up into, um, groups of two or three to hunt, uh, during the day. And so Brittany went with Rebecca that first day, um, and Rebecca harvested a doe. And then I was with, um, another woman who's at the university, who's, um, not in the shop. She works with Anna Shalfoon, um, on songbirds and small mammals and so um, I was with her and then she kind of actually helped me with my hunt and she walked me through everything and uh, ranged the buck that I ended up shooting and yeah it was it was really fun. Can you tell us the story of that hunt? Uh, yeah so uh, we're we hunted in uh, hunt area 32 which is near Alcova Wyoming um, and uh, so Ashley and I started out which actually um I forgot my tag in Laramie, so we had to go oh, to Casper and 
get it reprinted uh, first thing in the morning, which was uh, kind of a bummer and uh, pretty typical of me forgetting a lot <laughs> of things. But uh, after we figured that all out, uh, we started out, uh, we probably started hunting about nine uh, and we saw a group of what we thought was about 10 pronghorns uh, pretty quickly, actually, about a half mile away. And so we started, uh, there was a little, um, a couple little ridges between us and them. And so we just kind of started walking towards them. And then as we got a little bit closer um, and uh, started to uh, crawl into them, we noticed that there was actually about 50. Um, oh, and, wow. um, so we just kind of crawled up. Um, we got in to about 150 yards from them. Um, I'm not because I'm still pretty new to hunting. I, I don't really want to take any shots longer than 150 yards right now. Uh, but so we got up and yeah, Ashley was ranging for me. Um, and then uh, we, uh, yeah, just kind of sat there for a while and I waited for, um, I had a type one tag so I could shoot anything. Um, and I just kind of waited for an animal to, to be broadside and not have any other um, animals in that same area um, before I took a shot. And then, yeah, it was, uh, he dropped pretty quickly. It was a, a lung shot. Um, and then, yeah, we uh, went and grabbed him and dragged him back uh -oh. out to shoot two track. And um, yeah, That's it was beautiful. very fun. I love, there's two things I love so much about antelope. One is how they do just multiply like as you know as you get closer and <laughs> they pop did, out yeah. from the landscape and suddenly what you thought was 10 is 50 uh but also uh, i mean way to be sneaky to sneak up on 50 antelope and get within 150 yards is no easy task that's major <laughs> the wind that. was on our side it was pretty windy and it was blowing away from them so i think it helped with both scent and sound but yeah it was i think a lot of luck involved but it was very fun <laughs> Very cool. Have you done in your like work and everything, have you done like autopsies of animals before? Yeah. So, with, um, uh, so was that a different thing? Like going from like science breakdown to food breakdown? It is. Yeah. Uh, so I do uh, quite a few. So they're necropsies when they're on not the same species as you. So, uh, mm -hmm with all the deer that I work on, uh, I'll do necropsies on them. And um, the one uh, very nice thing about um, field dressing an animal that you just shot is that it hasn't started to rot yet. So it doesn't <laughs> smell bad at all, which a lot of the animals for my study that I get to, it's been a day by the time I get to them. And if it's, if it's winter time, it's not a big deal, but in the summertime, they can smell pretty bad. By pretty the bad. Or, uh, yeah. That yeah. I wasn't expecting then, that but, answer, but it totally makes sense. <laughs> uh, and then the other cool thing is uh, uh, when I'm uh, doing a necropsy on a, a mule deer, we only really pull samples uh, for adenovirus. So it's uh, liver, lung, and spleen. And so I don't have to be super uh, careful when I'm gutting it. Um, and so I was like, I think with uh pronghorn and field dressing it, it took me much longer because I was being much more careful in how I was cutting things which yeah that was also pretty interesting New. to see that difference <laughs> yeah have you oh. have you cooked with them yet um so not with any of the one from this year but I did um I just finished my pronghorn from last year um I just the last thing I ate actually was the heart I made uh pastrami with it Ooh. Oh, wow. How do you do that? You brine it for a couple weeks and then you smoke it for like three to four hours and then you put it in the oven with a tray of water and steam it for about an hour. Wow. And then I don't have a deli slicer, but they taste, I think, much better if you thin slice them. Um, but I just had kind of like thick chunks of it, but it was still very good. It's fascinating because you know I don't I don't know that I've mentioned this particular fact on the podcast, but uh, pastrami sandwiches are my favorite sandwiches, and I never <laughs> even thought of making heart pastrami. Um, you should you should try it. It was very. I good. should absolutely try it. Excellent. Jess, you harvested a antelope this year. I I have harvested two, working on my third. Oh uh, wow! 
Yeah. I love that I, Wyoming tag system, man. God, you, know, <laughs> you know how to use the Wyoming tag system. Um, you, you really can benefit from it. I ended up with nine, ta- 10 tags this year. I have three antelope, three elk, three deer, and a bear. Um, a buck of each species and two does or two females of each species. But, uh, yeah, I have a buck antelope and a doe antelope in the freezer. Uh, unfortunately I'm the person that eats the heart first. So now I'm kicking myself cause I want to try the pastrami. So maybe on the third one, I will do that. That sounds, I just can't imagine having that many antelope in my freezer. That sounds excellent. I know where to come. For dinner. Yeah, between Gage and I, we have five antelope in a freezer right now. It's a little bit much. Okay. We're sharing with a lot. So if anybody needs antelope, man. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep you posted. I uh, I went out last week. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> I went I'm out last serious. week. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went out last week with a uh, with two friends, um, antelope hunting, and we had a great time. Uh, but I've realized that when I'm in the field with other people, I have a hard time prioritizing my own hunt, which is fine. Totally mm-hmm. fine with that because I really enjoy helping other people and supporting them and um, and helping them have success. But uh, as a result, I didn't come home with an antelope. So I'm thinking of going back before the season ends. But if I don't, um, Jess, I know where you live. Yeah. Well, I've got plenty <laughs> and I'm happy to share. Um, cool. But yeah. Oh, I love that this starts like, one, congratulations on an antelope uh, to fill your freezer for another year, Taylor. And two, it's really awesome to think about a bunch of uh, really amazing scientists who are helping change the landscape, uh, at least definitely in Wyoming, and I would argue much larger. So uh, out hunting together. That's just a great mental image. <laughs> yeah, and it was I- very fun. And honestly, I'm a little bit jealous because I enjoy geeking out over like naturalist stuff with my friends when I'm out in the field uh, and to have the knowledge of a wildlife researcher to geek out with when I was there just sounds incredibly appealing. It's cool because none of us actually study antelope. And so uh, there's things about them that we um, don't quite think about when we're just like looking at them on the landscape that when we were hunting them um, and after we harvest them, uh, we noticed, which was uh, a pretty cool thing because we mostly work on deer and bighorn sheep and moose. Yeah. And antelope are just weird. I mean, that is just mm-hmm. fundamentally when people are like, what are animal antelope like? It's no, they're weird. They're little alien deer. It's very strange because they're not <laughs> even deer. They're just weird. <laughs> yes, they are. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that story with us. Oh, yeah. Uh, research, switching from one uh, exciting topic to another site. What was that? One rabbit hole to another rabbit hole? Yes. <laughs> one exciting topic to another exciting topic. Okay. Taylor, tell us about your research on the effects of hunter harvest on horn size in sheep. Yeah. So um, I've been at the university for, this is my sixth year as a graduate student. And I started with my master's and it was looking at uh, how hunting affects horn size. And uh, it was going to originally be bighorn and thinhorn sheep, but it transitioned to just be bighorn sheep. Um, And so uh, working with Kevin and actually a lot of other really great biologists and researchers across uh, Western North America, they, um, so Kevin had written a, a paper using Boone and Crockett um, data to assess changes in horn and antler size over time and then test some kind of really broad um, hypotheses on what might be causing um, either declines or changes um, in in the size of horns and antlers. And, and so he worked with uh, a lot of really great folks on that, and they were all... Um, uh, involved with my master's. And so I kind of came on to this project after they had developed it. Um, but so the, the purpose was kind of to understand if horn size was changing through time and what factors might be contributing to those changes. And so we worked with, um, state agencies across, uh, Western North America to get harvest records. So for bighorn sheep that are harvested in any state, they're required to be checked into, uh, the, um, state agency. And so there exists this incredible amount of data on uh, the size and age of uh, bighorn sheep throughout their range. And so using those records, we can kind of um, look at how horn size changes through time and what what's affecting that. And so 
there are three primary factors that um, dictate how big an animal is going to be. Um, the first one being age, and especially for bighorn sheep who continually grow their horns throughout their life, um, age is the biggest factor in determining size. Um, and then nutrition also plays uh, a really important role. So animals that are exposed to high quality resources throughout their lives are going to have bigger horns typically than animals that are um, in lower quality or poor habitat areas. Um, and then the last being genetics. So if a, a male has big horns, he's likely going to sire a son that has big horns. Um, um, so those are the, the three main factors. And so using the, the state harvest records, um, we kind of looked at how how horn size was changing on the surface level. And then we dived in a little bit deeper to look at, at those three different uh, factors, age, genetics, and nutrition, to see which of those might be um, influencing any of the changes that we see. So Were you I have a couple questions? This is when Jess and I like trip over each other to <laughs> ask questions. Why should go there first? Go for it. Um, just a couple of questions to kind of understand the scope uh, of the study. Um, which states did you pull data from, and how many years did you look at? So we requested data from everything, um, basically where. Um, animals are harvested uh, or where bighorn sheep are harvested. And hold on one second. I can, it's a 11 states and one Canadian province. And you were, you were only doing bighorns, correct? You were, so you were saying like California bighorn, probably the, the Rocky mountain bighorn, the desert bighorn. Yes. Or other. Exactly. Okay. Cool. So 11 states and one Canadian province. And then we looked at data from 1981 to 2016. And so for oh, not wow. all of the states had, uh, yeah, it's really, and some of the states uh, like Arizona, their uh, harvest records go back into the 50s. So it's like a Im very impressive amount of data that's available. And it's, I think it's very cool because it's um, community science. Uh, it's mm -hmm. hunters are contributing these data and it's, it kind of highlights like, uh, it highlights the importance of um, hunting and hunters in conservation and understanding what these animals are doing through time. Jess, go ahead. Oh, I was like, I was like, wait, <laughs> I was like, I know you're. So when you're looking at these these uh, things that that influence horn growth, uh, were you looking at like? you know, as you looked at nutrition, were you also looking at like weather pattern or, or how the year, you know, was it a wet year? Was it a dry year, you know, drought, that kind of thing? Or was it more based on, I mean, this is all kind of getting back to that nutrition. Um, uh, at least as I know, like in mule deer, uh, like a healthy mom usually means a healthy baby, which also transfers into a usually larger baby, at least antler size, if the genetics predispose them to it. Is it similar in sheep? It is similar. And actually, so Kevin, uh, he wrote a paper um, looking at this with Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep. Uh, and it's so, <clears throat> sorry, I'll first answer the first part of your question. Um, so for for my master's work where we looked at um, harvest records, we don't really have a great indication of nutrition on individual animals because really all we have is a measurement of horn size, um, their age based on horn annuli and then the year that they were harvested. Um, and so we did, we used remotely sensed data to get at um, a proxy of nutrition. So yeah, looking at drought, um, if there was if particularly wet years. Um, and then we also looked at NDVI, which is a metric of greenness on the ground. So if they had um, a lot of um, forage available to them or if it was um, pretty poor in a given year. And so we looked at that uh, only with remotely sensed data, just because of the spatial that makes sense. So, yeah. Scale. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Cool. But so we, we also did look at those remotely sensed um, variables during different periods of their life. So yeah, as you said, um, nutrition of a mom is really, really important for determining um, the size and um, shape of offspring horns and antlers. And yeah, Kevin's done that in white-tailed deer and uh, he's 
uh, seen pretty drastic effects of um, mom's nutrition on her son's antler size. Um, but then I've uh, read we, Kevin's report, and I think it's the bane of every one of the season setting meetings because I usually stand <laughs> up and start talking about it. <laughs> uh, I think that's his favorite paper. <laughs> yeah, he loves that paper. It's a, it is a very cool paper. Um, but he so uh, Kevin, uh, Tom Stevenson, who's out of California, um, a couple other people, and I also wrote a paper using the Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep data set to look at these same questions about how nutrition might influence horn size. And um, this was uh, less individual based, so it wasn't looking at a mom's condition and how that directly ties to offspring, but it did look at female condition in a population and how that influenced or how that might predict uh, horn size of males. And there is a pretty strong relationship there as well. So the nutrition that animals are exposed to definitely has a really important influence on if they're going to be able to grow to their full potential. That's so cool. So with this research, did you find declines in horn size? So for some populations, we did. Um, um, so what we did is we looked at each population through time, and we first just assessed if there were changes in horn size at the surface. And so for a lot of populations, you do see declines through time, but that can be explained by something other than just um, genetics resulting or the removal of big males resulting in changing genetics. Um, so for example, if you have a population in 1980 where the average ram in that population is 10 years old, the animals that are being harvested are gonna have really big horns. And if through time, the age structure of that population shifts and in 1995, the average age is a five-year-old, uh, you're going to see smaller horns. And so on the surface, it might look like in that population, horn size has substantially declined. And in part it has, but that's a, an artifact of the age of the animals. And they just haven't had the time to grow into that um, big mature ram that you were seeing in, the, in 1980. This makes so, really an interesting thing. You know, I've been on a sheep hunt in the Northwest Territories and the, uh, the Harold Grindy, the uh, outfitter was very um, stringent and, and he's amazing, by the way. He's, he was great to go hunting with, but he asks that hunters harvest um, 10 years or older. Um, that's, and, and he asks eight. Cool. Yeah, so he asks eight years or older, but, but he prefers if it's 10 and up. So like, you know, last day you can shoot an eight-year-old or, you know, they want you to get a sheep. You're going to come out with a sheep. But he, all of his guides, and, and it was some of the most profound things I think I've learned is all of his guides are like incredibly adapted, like uh, aging by annuli. Um, I got to learn how to age by annuli. I feel like I'm finally at the point where I can, and I don't just look like I'm looking at like rings on a tree. Um <laughs> But yeah, I thought that was really amazing that he did that because, uh, and it must, you know, clearly he knows what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. And uh, so, so there are some populations where we do see, after you account for those changes in the age structure, you do still see changes in horn size through time and, and declines. Um, and in particular, we saw that mostly in Alberta and the interesting thing about that is Alberta harvests their sheep very differently than we do in most of the, the lower 48. Um, and so in Alberta, the, um, the requirements for harvest is a size requirement. So it has to have a four-fifth curl, which is basically the tip of the horn lines up with the eye. Um, and then um, other than that, any ram that reaches that size is legally able to be harvested. And so what happens when you have a size requirement and not an age requirement is the animals that grow really fast at young ages are harvested. So if a, a five-year-old gets to a four-fifth curl, he's going to get killed before he has the chance to breed and pass on his genetics and um, propagate it on the landscape. Whereas if it takes another ram until he reaches eight or nine, until he's a four-fifth curl, he's going to be able to stay there, um, breed females, and then his genetics are going to get what, what's passed on. So when you're focusing on age as opposed to size, you're really, you're getting rid of that selection for 
genetics in, in a way, because you're, you're harvesting the ones that have been on the landscape. They've had the chance to reproduce, whether they do it or not is a, a biological thing at that point, but you've, you've given them the chance to, to live and reproduce and mate. And then you're harvesting them when they're old enough that um, it shouldn't have uh, adverse effects on, on so uh, the genetics of a population. Can you walk us through really quickly um, how you would age it? How you would age a bighorn sheep? Oh, yeah. So uh, bighorn sheep grow horn annuli. Um, so each year in the wintertime when um, their access to nutrition gets a little bit um, poorer, their, um, their horn growth slows down a bit. And so you'll see these rings that are associated with each winter. And then between each ring is an annual increment of growth. And that occurs over the next year. So then as they get into the summertime, their horns start growing a little bit faster. And then that following winter, it slows down again. And so when it slows down, you get a darker, more compressed amount of horn growth. And so that ring is what um, is used to age them. And so each year they'll put on a ring and then you can um, count the rings and that um, tells you how old a ram would be. So cool. I can imagine just uh, like an archaeology dig going back through the layers of the last few years to tell what each summer and each winter may have been like. Yeah, it's and it's very similar to you can to tree rings where you can see um, in specific years if it was a drought year or a um, a very lush or productive year, you can see those same patterns show up in in bighorn um, horns. Whoa. <laughs> Did you say whoa? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you talked about how it was different, how um, how hunts are managed in Alberta are different than how they're managed in the states. Uh, how are they managed in the states? So um, in the states, we used to have in many states there used to be size requirements for harvest, but most states have actually gotten rid of that, and so now it's um, most males are legal. Um, Alaska still does have an age requirement. Um, and so that's, I think that's pretty cool. Um, but so in Alberta, um, most residents can buy a tag every other year and harvest a, a male. Whereas in the lower 48, uh, our, how we um, allocate tags is much more conservative. And so for a lot of states, it's a once in a lifetime tag. Um, it's only a handful of rams are harvested from a, a population every year. Um, and so because it's such low harvest pressure, even if you do have high selection for large or fast growing males, it's, there's still enough males on the landscape that you're not, you're not removing all of the ones that grow really quickly or really large um, early in life. And so it allows, it allows those males to, um, to grow big and to, to survive and reproduce um, a lot of the times before they're harvested. Jess, any other questions? No, that, well, I mean, yeah, many. Well, go for it. Um, so looking at how, uh, like how, the, as, well, as nuanced as this is, because it really is, it's not just saying, yes, it affects it. No, it doesn't. It's not a yes and no. It's more like a scenario-based uh, effect. Is there things that like, um, or, or fallacies maybe, myths that hunters create have created around these that you hear about? And is there a way that we can sort of address those? Yeah. So I guess, I don't know if it's a specific group who's created um, fallacies or um, myths, but there is this idea that selecting for males who have big um, horns or antlers is causing these irreversible and really drastic changes in populations. Um, and it's been called evolution in reverse because hunters are selecting out the the biggest and the best males. And there's so that idea has has propagated in um, the popular literature, and it's it's been a, a concern to to a lot of people, both researchers and and the public. Um, and the the theory underlying that idea is valid because if we are if we select out those 
the biggest and the best and we select them at a high enough intensity, we for sure can cause changes to populations that are um, undesirable. Mm -hmm. But because you're right that it is very nuanced and how how we manage is a huge part of if we're going to see changes or not. Um, that's what I think is often left out of conversations. Uh, so it's easy to say, yeah, trophy hunting or hunting for males that have big and um, impressive antlers and horns are, are causing these terrible changes to populations. Um, that, that can be true in some instances, but the reality is in, in almost all instances of how we're managing uh, ungulate populations, it's, it's not causing um, significant changes. And the, I think the biggest thing is just to, to realize that, yeah, science is nuanced and you have to, um, you have to account for, for many different factors before making those broad uh, assumptions or broad generalizations. It's, um, I imagine the, the sort of, you know, I, and I see this mistake made often, whether it's season setting meetings or otherwise, uh, with hunters saying like, well, like, why aren't my, you know, we made a change last year. Why are the deer or sheep not bigger this year? That kind of thing. And, um, you know, obviously we forget that animals have lifespans and most of the time these things go generationally. So, I mean, changes and major changes seem like they would be seen in decades not uh you know year increments oh yeah for sure and especially with with this question and, and with bighorn sheep um you're not going to see it for 20 to 30 years because yeah they have to breed and then their offspring have to reach a an age where they also can breed and that they like it, it does, it takes generations and it takes decades sometimes to see changes. What is the lifespan of a bighorn sheep? Um, Naturally, <laughs> without so, interference. They can live uh, 12, 13 years. I think the oldest in the, the data set I had was 15, um, but they, I think they're reaching the end of their lifespan around 12 or 13 for um, males. I'm not a hundred percent sure on females. It might be a little bit older. Mm. It's so interesting. Um, you know, I've more, I can't believe this is a sentence I'm going to say. I have more experience looking at doll sheep than I do with Rocky mountain bighorn sheep. Um, just through like the eye of a hunter or through a critical eye and looking at, you know, we saw a lot of eight-year-old sheep when we were out hunting, um, like pretty obviously eight-year-old. And, and they, you know, a lot of them were full curl, if not full curl and more. Like they all look so big and, and, you know, some of them had like the tips pointed out or, you know, you just, it was like the picturesque, like front of a calendar looking big horn sheep or so, thin horn sheep, excuse me. Um, and then... Uh, the one that Bridget ended up harvesting ended up being a 12 year old. And he was just such a significant difference between sort of like eight year old and 12 year old. Um, you know, when we finally saw him, it was like very eye opening. It was like, Oh, Oh no, 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 no. That is, that's, that's a bigger <laughs> sheep. Um, and, and so like for those of us that don't spend our time in the mountains staring at multiple cases of eight year old big horns or thin horns, um, it is, it's like, they're all, they just look big. I mean, even some of the smaller ones look big because they're just like the horns are large in body proportion size. That's why they're called big horns. Um, and so mm -hmm. thinking about like having a critical eye on that and, and looking at age class and, and seeing such a significant difference in the older ones. Um, I just think that's a really fascinating sort of tidbit to keep in the back of our heads as we look at sheep now <laughs> so yeah Jess, sure. when, you, when you say there was a difference um do you mean it just like the physical size of the sheep himself yeah well I mean physical size he was certainly pretty burly um horn size like thick I he was just bigger he was broomed on both sides um, which broomed in sheep means he'd, he'd either broken off or rubbed off the tips of his 
uh, horns. Um, and so he was like broomed to his, I think, second year on one side and his third year on the other. Um, and even with that, like was still like larger than the other sheep around him. And there was like a couple eight-year-old rams with him um, when we saw him. And so we really had this like, n- you know, next to each other kind of ability to be like, oh, that's a really big sheep. And there's like two full curl sheep behind him. And he still looks larger, um, even broomed. It's literally like almost like width around horn. Like he looked like he had, this is going to be, and I said this in a, in the film that was around this hunt, he looked like he had giant princess Leia buns on either side of his head. <laughs> Cause it was just like, just massive. And, um, he was, he was certainly like big bodied too. I would say he looked a lot more. He also looked like he'd been through a lot more than the others. He had some battle wounds. (laughs) Just a general air of maturity and wisdom. Yes, he was a big old boy. (laughs) That's lovely. So Taylor, I know there's there's, uh, more research that you've done that I would love to dig into. But before we do that, uh, and and Jess, are there any more questions? Or Taylor, is there anything else you would like to make sure to mention about your sheep research? I don't not unless you guys have more questions. Jess? I think my my one last sort of last trailing thing was was in doing this and, and you know mentioning about like all of the hunter data that you guys parsed through and looked at and used. Um like were you were you able to share any of this sort of uh was this other than being published in an academic sense which is amazing um i'd love if hunters could hear some of this stuff because because well they're going to with the artemis <laughs> podcast but uh you know I, yeah i guess like did you share this or have you shared this with other hunters and have you had any reactions from it rian and jacob back who i think you guys are interviewing uh, later in this series um she wrote a research brief based on the academic article that i wrote for my master's work that's more public facing and helps break down some of these um, nuances so that they're easier to understand and less technical. Um, And so they, last spring, uh, the Montee shop went to the sheep show and I think they talked to some hunters about it. I unfortunately couldn't go. So I'm not, I haven't had a lot of direct interactions with sheep hunters about it um, after I finished it, but throughout my master's, um, I, I went to the sheep show a couple of times and then a couple other wild sheep foundation um, events. And uh, it's really exciting talking to uh, people who love sheep about this stuff and particularly people who love hunting sheep, because the number one thing that they care about is the welfare of the species. Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, the really cool thing about talking to sheep hunters is they, the thing that they wanted to know is, are we causing a a problem with how we're harvesting? And if we are, how do we fix that? Because sheep hunters, I think, are one of the people who respect um, bighorn sheep the most because they've studied them and they've watched them and they appreciate them in a way that um, many other people um, just haven't had the opportunity to do. And so uh, one of the really cool things I think about my master's was interacting with those different kinds of people and, yeah, talking to them just about how we manage sheep and if we're doing the right thing and how to be better and if we're causing problems. And if not, that's like, that's great. Um, But if we are, what do we need to do to fix it? I think one of the things that's most fascinating about this study too, is, is that it does uh, look closely at sort of two different management styles and in doing so, I think really highlights the important role proper management plays. Um, mm-hmm. and in, oh, yeah. in a way that other studies don't. It's fantastic. One quick thing before you take us to a quick break. Um, I I was at Sheep Show that year um, and, and got to sit in on a couple of like things that you guys were talking about. And it was, that was sort of what prompted it. I was curious, like what kind of reactions you'd had to it because it was really great to be around and, and to see that there and to see it in a place like Sheep Show. Um, it, it said a lot. It was really cool. Fantastic. That's awesome. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We will be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast. 
where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. Welcome back. Okay, so we're going to transition a little bit because, um, Taylor, I know you've been doing other research with the Monty Shop as well, and we won't have as much time to, to go as in-depth into this now. Maybe we'll have you back if, if we feel the need, which knowing Jess and I, we probably will feel, will feel the need. Uh, but can you tell us a little, just kind of a broad mm-hmm. overview on the research you're doing re- in relation to the Wyoming Range Project? Yeah, so after I finished my master's, um, I transitioned to doing a PhD with Kevin um, and um, focusing on the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project. Um, And in part because in 2015, I was a technician on this project, actually with Rhiannon. Um, We were just very naive little wildlife kids learning about uh, the world, but uh, we both fell in love with that area, and the Wyoming and Salt Ranges are one of my favorite places in the entire world, and I, I truly love it out there. Um, but beyond that, the, the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project is pretty incredible for so many reasons, but uh, one of them being that it's a long-term study, and uh, we're following individuals throughout their lives, and then not only individuals, but the offspring of those individuals. And so we catch adults um, twice a year so we can have um, a snapshot of what their condition is when they're leaving their summer range and then when they're leaving their winter range. Uh, We catch fawns for all the females so we can look at offspring survival and um, characteristics of their fawns. Um, And then we have fine scale GPS data so we can look at movement behaviors and a whole suite of other things and it's it's a it's a truly incredible project that I'm so grateful that I get to work on um and I the other um pretty amazing thing about it is I get to work with um some very great people on it so I'm currently the person who's running the field work but before me it was Sam Dwinnell um and she's an amazing scientist and woman and person and everything um and so I got to learn a lot of um what I'm doing now from her. And then I also work really closely with Rhiannon. Um, she's uh, doing her master's on, on these deer as well. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing project for so many reasons. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful that I get to work on it. Um, wow. That was, I'm so sorry. I just kind of like went on a weird tangent, but uh, I will tell you now about my PhD work, which is, <laughs> Uh, so on the Wyoming Range Project, I, um, I'm focusing on some of the effects of the bad winters that we've seen out west in the last few years. So the Wyoming Range population in 2016 and 2017 experienced a particularly harsh winter, and um, the animals that did survive were pretty close to death when we caught them in March. Um, they looked like skeletons. They were, they were in rough shape. Um, and so because we've had these animals collars throughout their whole lives, we have a really neat opportunity to look at what those animals were doing before they um, encountered that bad winter and then how they've shifted their behavior and their strategies following that bad winter um, to, to survive in, in a landscape like that. And so um, a lot of my work is focused, focused on winners and how, how animals are coping with that. And so uh, one of the questions that I'm looking at is, how the animals that did survive that bad winter made it. So was there differences in their behavioral strategies or um, how they were um, moving across the landscape and what, uh, yeah, what allowed them to survive when, when many other deer did not. Um, and then I'm also looking at um, how animals have, are changing their reproductive strategies. So, um, are animals that survive that bad winter less likely to invest as much in their offspring? And are they going to be a little bit more selfish in the summertime and try and put on fat and focus on themselves in case they encounter another bad winter like that? Or are they going to keep doing what they do and just try to raise offspring um, regardless of the cost that comes to themselves? Wow. What are you guys seeing? Like what kind, do you have any, 
I mean, I feel like this is ongoing. So you, obviously it's not a finished research, but are you seeing any trends emerge early or, or is it uh, still kind of up in the air? Yeah, so uh, we've seen some pretty cool trends so far. I haven't formalized any of the analyses. I'm, I'm still in the beginning to middle part of my dissertation. But um, so that bad winter in 2016 and 2017, when we caught them in March, they were the skinniest that we've ever seen those animals. Um, they were in, in really rough shape. And then that following December, they were the fattest we'd ever seen them. And so that's in part because uh, the animals that did survive that bad winter were pretty bad at raising offspring that summer. And in part, just because they were in such, in such rough shape in, in that early spring that they just didn't have anything to invest in their offspring. And so offspring survival and fawn survival in the um, summer following that bad winter was, was pretty abysmal. But because of that, they didn't have the costs associated with raising a fawn. And so they just ate a lot and got really fat. And the other mm. thing is because in that bad winter, we saw pretty poor survival of adults. Uh, so a lot of the animals that were living on that landscape died. And so the competition between other deer um, was reduced pretty substantially. So they had no cost of raising fawns and they had no competition with other animals. And given that it was such a wet and harsh winter, it was a pretty productive spring. And so they just kind of flourished and they were very, very fat when we caught them in December. And so, so following that, that winter where they were really fat, um, we saw that the, the trends in their fat patterns kind of went back a little bit to normal. And so, yeah, one of the questions that I'm, I'm hoping to, to dive into a little bit more is understanding if, if females are um, changing how they behave in the summer. Um, and if that experience of almost dying, but then having a, a really great summer of no fawns and just getting fat um, changed how they how they're gonna um, allocate resources. And in the future, are they gonna be more stingy with what they're giving to fawns because they were able to enter the following winter um, with so much fat? I think get fat is a great response to trauma. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to have been mine. <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny, but <laughs> I just I mean like it's it's so interesting, you know, talking about like the reduction of competition for things, whether it's competition for your own resources, which is what a fawn is, or competition for like even mouths on the landscape and and uh forage, which you know is when a, the adults pass. I just I think it's so fascinating because it because in a sense, you know, you have to think that like some of these boom and bust periods are, are, are natural and some are human caused and are made worse by human conditions. And it's a fine, like a fine little hole in the top of a needle to thread, um, to talk about, you know, populations experience ups and downs. In fact, when we should get nervous is when it's consistent one way or another, <laughs> um, you kind of want these like uh, peaks and valleys, but not in a peak. You want them sort of rolling hills as far as like looking on a graph. Um, and mule deer seem to be the ones that are like, it's really obvious. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, if that was winter of what, winter 2016, winter 2017 that that happened. Um, so, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, we're going to, It'll be interesting to see like the class of even just the class of buck that we're seeing in the Wyoming range, especially considering like uh, health of mom in the next pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, that's actually very interesting that you said that. So we didn't have a lot of like our survival in 2017 was pretty poor, but we have one male who we have collared who was born in 2017 as a fawn. Um, we caught him and his sister and both of them are still alive. Um, their mom is one of my favorite deer because I think she's an outstanding mom. But uh, oh. the that that buck who was born in 2017, we caught him again uh, this last fall when he was two years old, and he looked like a yearling. He had like tiny, tiny little forks, um, and I I would bet that um, he's gonna 
be small for his whole life just because his mom had almost nothing when she gave birth to them and she somehow made it work and and they survived but I I bet she'll um that that buck is going to be a small buck for his whole life do you guys have uh, any bucks collared from the like next year from from that what is it 2018 spring no 2019 spring is that what I'm looking is that am I doing my years right do you have like one year younger buck than this one so <laughs> yes we will, you, will you have and somebody very color wow that's yeah I, I mean I so we, think that's crazy because you hear a lot about I mean everything we hear is this fallacy that it's all about or it's all about this one thing and, and everything that I'm hearing is that you know, certainly that gives you like the the height at which you can peak at for sure. But if you can peak at it has a lot more to do with your mom and the habitat that she got and the amount of food and nutrition that she was able to uh, consistently have. Um, that seems like it's equally, if not more so important than genetics. The nutrition that a mom has is, I think, definitely more important genetic than genetics because if they could have the genetics to be the biggest buck in the entire world and if their mom is in bad shape and doesn't have the resources to allocate to them they're they're never going to reach that point they're going to be small um so yeah it's it's a cool thing to think about and it's something that kevin is really passionate about and it it shows up in all of our research um and i think it's it's really cool that it's starting to to get that idea is starting to gain traction and people are starting to really appreciate that the nutrition that animals are exposed to is um, a huge part of um, what's influencing a population. Yeah, it's going a long ways to dispelling some of the, uh, I mean, it's sort of the, oh, I hate to use this word, but the old guard knowledge of, or, or, or insistence on, on, well, it was before we had the knowledge of this stuff. Like it was the insistence on genetics and, you know, if you're, it's just in how we go about managing, because a lot of managing, at least as, as our Wyoming Game and Fish does, is just about, just as much about hunter uh, opportunity and desire as it is about making sure we have, I mean, obviously they're very serious about making sure we have good and healthy populations, but they also have to figure in hunter desire and, and hunter opportunity. And um, I think the more that we start hearing about like the health of the moms and the more we start putting the importance on like, like the habitat, the nutrition and the females, um, we can get away from this, like just antler obsessed, uh, thought process of genetics only. One thing that yeah. I'm finding super fascinating and just uh, talking to other researchers and learning more about their work is, so my background is is education and early childhood education and child development and the parallels, which makes sense, right? Because <laughs> humans are just, an, as Caitlin loves to say, Caitlin Sheehan loves to say, we're just animals in pants. And so, you know, it makes sense in the studies that have been done on human research about the importance of the health of the mother and the health of the infant or the importance of child nutrition or the impacts of child malnutrition on size. It just makes sense that that translates to animals too. And for me, it's, it actually has been a bit of an aha moment. It's like, well, duh. And I'd never made, I'd never connected those dots before. Um, and I'm just finding it really fascinating. It's, I, I feel like that's been like every science bit that like I hear is like, you're like, oh, that's totally logical. And here's the data that backs it up. <laughs> Taylor, what's the timeline of this, of, of your uh, research on winter effects on mule deer? So this project started in 2013, and that's when they collared the first 70 females. Um, and so I'm using data from, from the beginning of the study and then um, up until this year, basically. Um, and so looking at... What, what I'm hoping to do with my dissertation is to, to look at these questions, not only in like the next year, so not just how is this bad winter affecting, directly affecting these animals following it, but what are the long-term consequences and, and what does this mean for populations through time? And so looking three, four, five years after a bad winter um, can tell us a lot about what's affecting these populations and and why we might not see recovery um, as as quickly as we would want, um, or as quickly as we might expect sometimes. 
Jess, do you have any other questions? Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I know that's, um, I know that's, <laughs> I mean, I should rephrase that question for you. Um, are there any questions you would like to ask right now? <laughs> I think, I think if I go down any more rabbit hole, we'll be down one for a whole other podcast. So I think this is like listening to this and with the Wyoming range mule deer project, you know, uh, being here in Wyoming and Lander, um, and being someone that's hunted the Wyoming range and other places, uh, there's something very special about the Wyoming range and the deer there. Um, the landscape is incredible. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's just something to experience, but, but we as residents, and I'm going to speak from the hunting boys, we have over the counter tags. It's, it's a, it's a general hunt for us here in some of this incredible places. And so I would put it to us that this is a privilege that we could uh, lose very quickly by messing it up. Um, and so taking everything we've learned, and I would just go back to the you know previous two podcasts as well, everything we are learning in these series is talking about habitat and connectivity and the health of the mom. And um, that shockingly, it's all connected. And if we want healthy mule deer, and as hunters, if we want big bucks and big antlers, um, we better start paying attention a lot sooner than just when that buck turns four years old and looks big. Um, we better start paying attention years before that. And, you know, knowing that management scenarios change and they take slow time, whether it's in sheep horn size or it's in antler size of deer, like giving our managers the tools that they need and giving them the grace that it can be seven to 10 years before we see changes implemented um, or see the changes that were implemented the year we asked for them. Um, you know, I, I, we, we have a very, I want change and I want it now. And I sympathize with that, but like this thing with nutrition and, and lineage and generational uh, is pretty key. And it's, Everything I'm hearing and everything I'm learning in this is that it's uh, comes down to patience and a dedication to a long-term solution. Taylor, so I guess a thought, not a question. <laughs> a, a good thought. Taylor's anything else you want to make sure? I have one. I have one last question for you. That's a bit of a tangent. Um, and before we go there, is there anything else on your research you want to make sure to mention? I don't think so. So my, my last question is just some insight into what led you to, into wildlife research. Why did you choose this path? Um, so I've always been interested in science. Um, in high school, that was for sure my favorite topic was biology, physics, chemistry. Um, and then when I started my undergrad, um, I, I majored in biology, but my sister actually was a wildlife major and she was like, you should check this out. And so I did. Um, and so my sister works uh, for Minnesota DNR and she does a lot of CWD stuff, but um, it was really her who um, guided me on this path. Very cool. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. This was fascinating. And please reach out to us when you are done with your research uh, so we can hear what your findings were. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, your research has been heard a lot in in like some of the political and, and, and uh, you know, like Game and Fish Commission meetings and stuff like that. Taylor, I've, I've sat in those meetings and listened to either you or others present on this stuff. And um, it, it just Thank you for doing what you're doing. It's it's changing things, albeit slowly, um, and hopefully good policies coming from it. But I have uh, never seen wildlife have the popularity that it does with the level of science backing that popularity um, as I have in the last couple of years. And I think a large portion of it is due to the work you guys are doing. Yeah, it's so humbling to be in Wyoming and just the the number of people here who care about wildlife and care about research and, and figuring out, yeah, what you said, long-term solutions for some of these, these problems that we're seeing are, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I get to work with this group and that I, that I'm in this field and that I get to, yeah, have really great conversations with people like you guys. It's, <laughs> it's really awesome. Well, as I offer all scientists, as you come through Lander, because I know you're in Laramie, um, stop for a beer. Let's chat. 
For sure. Stuff for a pastrami sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Taylor. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was great talking to you guys. Hey, podcast listeners, uh, we probably don't tell you often enough, but we are so glad you're here. I know the holidays are busy, but if you could spare a moment to leave us a review or share the podcast with a friend, it would mean the world to Artemis. Your involvement helps us reach more listeners, which helps keep the show going. Thank you so much. And if you would like to learn more about the Monteith Shop, this passionate group, their exciting work, and even support their efforts, please go to ungulatecompendium.org. Also keep up to date on their activities and get exposed to interesting facts about ungulates by connecting with them through their social media handle at monteith.shop. If you have more questions about Taylor's research, shoot us an email, artemis at nwf.org. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. Until next week, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm-hmm.